Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcast blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, located high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line in Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. Today is Thursday, September the 22nd, 2011. It is episode 747, and today's show is titled One Nation Full of Ants. Now, what, what made me want to do this show today is, out at the expo, We released this new kind of branding look and feel for us on T-shirts and our banner. And the front of the shirts are cool. You've, you've probably seen them before. The front of the shirts have a medallion over the uh, left breast, and it's the, basically the medallion that the copper coins are done with strength, honor, knowledge, uh, and, you know, Val head on there, and the moral compass. And then on the sleeve we have a cross rifle and shovel, and the slogan, the revolution is you. But the big new branding message on the back is a flag. It's the United States of America flag, except something's a little bit different. All the stars are turned into ants, so it's 50 ants in the field instead of 50 stars in the field. And then it says, one nation filled with ants. We thought that was pretty cool. And it is a big goal that I have to turn my nation back into a nation of ants. Some people didn't really understand that, though. I would say about 50% of the people that came up to the booth looked at the flag or looked at the shirt and said, wow, that's just awesome, and uh, got it right away. So about half the people, and this is a prepper expo, so you would expect a high number of people just to snap to it. I'd say about 25%, one out of four, came up and said, uh, what's, this, what's the deal with that? And we said, you know the old story of the grasshopper and the ant? And they went, Oh, and as soon as you said that, man, they, okay, I get it, okay. About 25% of the people, when, uh, so another one in four, said, what ant and grasshopper? I've never heard of that story. And I absolutely was blown away. I'm not putting anybody down, I just, I didn't know. I mean, one of the reasons that I told the story so much in the beginning of the show wasn't because I didn't think anybody ever heard it before. It was because I figured everybody had heard it before, and it was like saying, hey, you know, just like I say when uh, you should you should have food storage so that you ensure your your future for food, and people go, I don't know about that. It's a little weird. I go, do you have life insurance? And they go, yeah, okay. Well, if you're insuring your life, maybe you should insure your ability to stay alive with food. So you, you take something very common that people accept, and you use it to help them understand something that they have resistance to that's actually a very normal thing that we've lost. So that's what I thought the ant and the grasshopper was. But I had people come by the booth, folks, and I'm not talking about teenagers. I'm talking about people in their 30s, their 40s, and their 50s. People who were in their 50s and 60s, I would say a few people, did not know the story of the ant and the grasshopper. And I, I, I sit back now and I think this is how we've turned into a nation of grasshoppers. This is how we've come so far that people don't even know the story. So I'm going to start out today's show by retelling the old story of the grasshopper and the ant in the way that my grandfather told me the story almost every week. Almost every week when I was a little kid, when we were visiting my grandparents up in Pennsylvania, you know, we would have like Saturdays, and he'd be out there, and he was an old Ukrainian guy, and he'd be sitting out there listening to stuff on the AM radio, like Polka and stuff like that. Uh, and I just, you know, I'd sit out there with him, and I really didn't dig the music or whatever, but he'd turn the music down, and he'd sit me on his knee. I'm talking, I was a little guy here, three, four years old, and I remember these experiences. And he would sit down, and he would tell me all the old stories. You know, Hansel and Gretel, um, you know, uh, the boy who cried wolf, uh, Red Riding Hood, all the old stories, right? And there was, ne you know, sometimes it would be this story and that story, but every week, the Ant and the Grasshopper was one of the stories he told me. And he would explain that the things that we did related to the story, like canning vegetables, like growing a garden, like hunting and bringing the, the, the harvest back home and storing it up. So here's the story that my grandfather told me as a young lad. The Ant and the Grasshopper. 
lived in a field together. And every day they showed up kind of for their daily activities. And the ant would come out with all his ant buddies and they would start gathering up food. And they would carry the food and they looked like they were working so hard. And they would carry the food back to their home and they would bury it down in the ground. And occasionally they would do some other activities. But most every day, the most work they did was revolving around getting what they needed for the day and getting a little bit more that they need, than they needed for that one day so that they would have enough to get by today and they would have something for the future. And they did that every single day. And every day they would do just a little bit more than necessary to build up a storehouse down in their little land hole. Well, the grasshopper would come out to the same field every day and he frolicked and he played and he fiddled and he, he just enjoyed life and he looked at these ants toiling under the sun and says, are you people crazy? What are you doing over there? You guys are killing yourselves. There's no need to haul all that food away and put it in your hole in the ground. There's, this is stupid. What are you doing? Look how much there is out here. And the ant turned to the grasshopper and the ant says, grasshopper, do you not understand that these days of abundance will eventually pass? That sooner or later it's going to get very, very cold and very, very dark and the snow and the ice are going to come and if you don't have a place to go and you don't have something to, to sustain you after, you're da after that happens, you're going to die, you're going to freeze to death and you're going to starve to death. And the grasshopper said, you're nuts. I'm going to play and I'm going to dance and I'm going to fiddle and I'm going to eat whatever I need and I'm not going to worry because all I see is a field of green as far as I can see. As far as I can travel, I can find nothing but more and more green. And the ant said, when it happens, don't come to us. We only have enough for our own family. And then the summer started to come to an end and fall came and the air was crisp and cool and a lot of the grass started to turn brown and go away, but there was still plenty to eat. And the ant said, grasshopper, time is almost up, please take responsibility for yourself. And the grasshopper said, this, this weather's great, man. What are you talking about? You know, this is beautiful. I don't need to worry about this. And then one day the dark clouds came and the first flakes of snow began to fall and the grasshopper began to shiver and he began to try to warm himself and he tried to look for a place to hide from the snow and then the snow got heavier. And, you know, and there was still some grass so he would run around in between the snowflakes and eat a little bit of grass and then the snow came heavy and all the grass was covered in snow. And in the field of white snow, there was a green grasshopper freezing to death. And he thought, I know, I'll go to the ants, they have food. But when he knocked on the ants' door, they didn't come out, and he stays out in the snow, and the grasshopper dies. Now that's the original story with some embellishments by me and some by my grandfather and, and where the two disconnect, I don't remember anymore. But that's the basic fable from a dude named Aesop that wrote these fables to teach morality lessons a long, long time ago. And you can look up all the fables of Aesop and you can find out that a lot of, uh, a lot of the modern stories that we tell today actually go back to there and are either versions of them or the exact story or somebody twisting one uh, and make it a little different. Well, what happened not so long ago is people decided that the grasshopper dying was too traumatic for our children to hear so Disney and other people made new versions where the grasshopper went oh Mr. Ant help me and the ant came out and said oh I'm sorry to see you like this come on in buddy and he shared a little bit and the grasshopper got through winter and learned his lesson well we're, we're robbing our children when we tell them that story folks it's not the nature of a grasshopper to change grasshoppers are grasshoppers they die every winter Ants are ants. They prepare for winter. That's why the story exists in the first place. So if you're gonna, if you're gonna tell your children the story, please tell them the truth. Tell them what really happened. Let me tell you what really happens to grasshoppers in a world of ants. When the grasshopper, long before the snow flies, the grasshopper dies, and then the ants cut them up in little pieces and take them home for food. That, that's what really happens to the grasshoppers. Because ants eat grasshoppers. Now, I don't know if you need to tell your kids that bluntly, but the grasshopper needs to die in the story, or the lesson's not learned. Because, We are human beings, so when I say you could be an ant or you can be a grasshopper, it's by choice. We are not by nature an ant or a grasshopper. We're simply emulating the behavior of either one, and we have a human intellect and an ability to choose. So the human that's acting like a grasshopper can turn into an ant, and I hope that more of you will. But an, an actual grasshopper in the story, by his very nature, it's what his place in nature is. And Aesop didn't tell the story so that people would feel sorry for the grasshopper. He told the story so people would learn from nature. And that's what we need to do if we want to tell our kids about this. And I think that I want to talk a little bit now about how we became a nation full of grasshoppers. Folks, I'm not that old. I will be 40 years old next August. I'm only 39. 
I grew up in a place a little bit different than I think most people did with, with a, a group of grandparents that had been through the Depression. Uh, both grandfathers served in World War II in different capacities, one in the Navy, one in the United States Army. Um, one is simply a, you know, a, a basic serviceman, seaman level, a low-level petty officer, I think, when he got out just for the duration of war in the Navy. And the other one who served before the war, during the war, after the war, during the Korean War, put 30 years in and retired as a chief warrant officer um, for. Um, so I, I had kind of a whole variety of, of, of life lessons handed to me through uh, men that had stood through those times in two totally different ways. And the one that only served for a while, that only served for the war, And then went home to the coal region of Pennsylvania is the one that would tell me these stories and the one that ingrained this stuff in me. And it was a place where I grew up at 14, 15 years old running around with a 22 rifle and no one had a problem with it. So maybe, just maybe I'm going back for the average place in America 10 more years to instead of the 85 being my teenage years, 75. At the most, at the most would say 1965. So that's 65 to 2011, it's a generation, folks. It's one generation. Many people born in 1965 are still with us today. Many people that were old enough to really remember when 1965 are with us today. Almost everybody, except people that were tragically taken out short, um, that were around in 1975 as you know, a young adult are still here with us today. So this is one generation that we've come this far. So you have to ask yourself, how did we go from a place where an old man would take his grandson, put him on his knee, and tell him uh, the story of the grasshopper and the ant, to a place where maybe 25% of the people at a self-reliance expo didn't know the story? How did we get here? And I think we got here through some euphoria and some false beliefs. We fought what must be considered the most uh, ravaging war of all time when we fought World War II. There were more people killed in World War II when we had up civilians and uh, the people killed in concentration camps and soldiers and, and all of that together than any other war uh, in recorded history unless we start chaining you know, multiple wars together and, and calling them a series of campaigns. Uh, and even in that case, it's very hard to say that there was ever a time where more human blood was spilled than World War II. And we came out of that war with a belief that the United States would be the most powerful country in the world forever. And we had a couple things that should have woke us up to reality there, like the Korean War, the Vietnam conflict, the Cold War. But those things actually served only to reinforce the delusion that we were somehow destined to be the overlords of the world and that everything we did was right. In Korea, you know, it kind of ended in that stalemate thing that's still going on today. Technically, that war never ended, but no one set a foot on U.S. soil or did any harm to U.S. assets other than, you know, field uh, men and, and assets in the field. The Vietnam conflict, I think most Americans walked away with that war with a belief if we had just fought it the right way, we would have won it. Uh, I can't say that they're wrong or right. Uh, the reality is I don't know. I know that if I had been 18 in 1968, I would have been uh, hell-bent for leather to run off and fight for the cause uh, because I would have been more indoctrinated than I even was in the 80s. I know that looking back now, I think that would have been a big mistake, uh, especially the way that the war came out. But in any event, uh, any humbling that was supposed to come out of Vietnam conflict really didn't hit home. And then we went into the 80s in the me generation, and technology started to evolve, and we came out of the stagflation of the 70s, and our economy actually began to look like something we could be proud of again. We rebuilt our military, and we fought the first Gulf War, and we fought that war in about 100 hours, and we, uh, we, we came out of it looking like we expected to. We built the space shuttle. We put men back in space. We claimed ourselves once again to be uh, the leaders in the world in the space race. Soviet Union fell apart. Eastern Europe fell apart. And uh, communism took a huge blow, at least in the uh, mainstream mindset. And we looked at the Soviet Union fall apart and said, see, our way really is better. And we didn't realize how much socialism was encroaching um, by the ballot box throughout the rest of the world, including our own nation. Then we got in these two conflicts today, and they don't really affect us as people, as individuals. I don't mean to belittle anything anybody's doing. You guys know how much I support our, our soldiers, uh, sailors, airmen, and Marines uh, afield. But no one other than the people going and their families is sacrificing for this war. 
Uh, we're not in gas rationing. We're not in material rationing. We're not buying war bonds. Um, no one has been really asked to alter their life in any way, shape, or form. And we've led ourselves to believe throughout this whole period of time that this nation can just do whatever it likes and everything will be just fine. But some of us are waking up. But in that time and in that period that we have become detached from our basic needs and we have become convinced that we are, by our pure superiority as being American citizens in the United States of America and, and the fact that we have a military that we can basically just say to anybody in the world, um, if you really try to hurt us, we can just wipe you out. We can just make you go away. And the only other nations out there that can do that in reality, that have that level of, of capability, would be the Soviet Union or what's left of Russia and its, 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 its former states uh, in China. And that both, all, you know, all three of those groups are fairly rational people that don't want the earth to end. So the whole launch them all and turn the whole world into a nuclear winter is probably not going to happen. So we're pretty good, no matter what. And we, we think that we can be immune to the laws of economics. Or we think that the rest of the world really still loves us when a lot of the world really doesn't, including many people who used to be our allies. Uh, we ignore the fact that we owe billions and billions and billions of dollars to everybody. I mean, there isn't a, there isn't a nation out there uh, that's not holding U.S. debt in some large level, uh, any nation of consequence anyway. So we've ignored all this. We've ignored risk to ourselves that have nothing to do with politics or government. Uh, we think that somehow, no matter what happens drought-wise, it won't really affect us. Sure, maybe our cornflakes will cost a little bit more, but, you know, the Fed will print some more money and we'll be able to buy it. We've just become of a belief as a people that everything's going to be okay. We've also created a welfare state where about half of the people in the country today are on some form of government assistance. Yes, that includes Social Security. Yes, the people on Social Security worked for it. But yes, they still count as being governmentally assisted. Because we all know that the system we were sold, when we were sold Social Security, is not the system that's in place today. It is not the fault of anybody drawing Social Security. If it's there when I turn old enough to get it, and I'll tell you, minimum age, whatever I can get, I will take, because I don't believe it's going to be there for much longer, um, I will take it. So I'm not putting anybody down. But the reality is, when we have a nation of people with half of the people that are being dependent on government to a great to a high level, whether it's for food stamps or welfare or Medicare or Medicaid or unemployment benefits. Again, another benefit that I feel is earned. You pay into a system for unemployment, you draw out should you become unemployed. It's supposed to be insurance. But 99 weeks and we want an extension, and we feel we're entitled to it. All of these things together have turned us into a nation of grasshoppers. We feel no need to prepare for anything. We don't even save money. We're actually starting to save money. Do you know that? Uh, we're starting, let me get into the turning of the corner and I'll kind of tie these two together. Are we turning a corner and if so, are we turning in, in, in the right direction? Are we turning toward the ant direction or are we going deeper into the ant, uh, the grasshopper direction? And my, my feeling is this, both. I, I believe the nation right now is polarizing. There are a great deal of people that are still involved in the collective delusion of the grand party. The grand drink off party where everybody's drunk off their ass. Nobody wants to clean up the mess, and nobody believes the party's ever going to end. And I believe that another group of people are looking around going, this party's going to end. Now, that doesn't mean when a party ends, does that mean it's the end of the world? No, it just means that there's a lot of hangovers, and there's a lot of regrets, and there's a lot of misery. And some people remember the party because that was a great party. And some people... You know how it is, folks, if you're of any age that you've been involved with any of this type of social activity, there's people that wake up and they hold their head and they go, oh my God, I will never do that again. Well, hangover short term, even a $2,000 bar bill because you were drunk and stupid and picked up a, a round for the entire place three or four times in a big club is relatively short term pain. The pain that we're going to experience from this hangover is much greater. And I think some of us are turning toward that ant direction and going, better clean up our mess, better put things together, start drinking a little bit of water, you know, so maybe some B12 and a, an aspirin or something, so we're ready for this morning and start cleaning out the system, and uh, let's get away from the rest of these yo-hos. But some of the yo-hos are like, party on. So I think we are turning a corner, and unfortunately we're turning the quarter in polar opposites. 
There are people that are so entrenched and they so do not want to let go of the delusion that they'll move further into the delusion. These people are out there trying to buy houses right now saying it's a great time to buy. And if you want to buy one house because you want to be there for a long time because you're investing in your future and you can afford your house and you can put 20% down and you can go out there and you can be a tough negotiator, it's a great time to buy a house. But if you're just one of the people that didn't lose your job and you're hanging by the skin of your teeth and denying it and you're sitting on $40,000 worth of credit card debt and $80,000 worth of student loan debt and you want to go out there and buy a half million dollar house right now, you are a fool. You are an ant. And there are, despite what they say about the housing market, you know, the show House Hunters rocking on it's like it's eighth season, still going strong. There's millions of ants out there, or millions of grasshoppers out there going deeper into debt and they're doing nothing to ensure their future. But the fact that we have attendances of you know six to nine thousand at something like a self reliance expo, that tells us that there's a lot of people turning the corner the other direction. So I think we're turning the corners equally into two different directions. But that leads me to my next question: Can we be a divided nation and become a nation once again full of ants? And I think we can. I think we can, but I don't think it's as productive or as, as good as if we would just do it collectively together. I think a nation together is much stronger than a nation divided. But let's think about the story. For the story to work, for there to be an ant and a grasshopper, there had to be a grasshopper. If we're going to learn anything from the delusion of the last 50 to 70 years that we've put ourselves into, we, we have to see the polarity to understand it. And some people have to be shivering cold for them to turn around and look at the ants and go, maybe they have a better way. And my belief is that the more ants we create uh, initially, kind of in a phase one of antification, right, antification of America, then the more ants we'll eventually create. Every single person that starts listening to this show and shares it with someone else, you're part of the antification of America. People tune in and listen and they go, this guy's nuts, and they listen for like three episodes. And if they hang on that long, they go, some things this guy says just bug me and I don't like him in some ways. Some people feel that way or this guy's way too libertarian for me or way too conservative for me or if you tune in on the right day, way too liberal for me. Um, but if you listen to the underlying message, you start to realize that everything that I say makes sense because it's just what your grandparents did. And most of us have not gone so far away that we forget that yet. So we can look back and we can say, if everybody lived this way at one time, and we believe that America was stronger then than it is now, and it's more solid and stable then than it is now, then maybe this stuff makes sense. So we need the division to become apparent so that more will cross the line and become more of a preparedness mindset. Now this isn't putting in a quarter million dollar bomb bunker. Uh, this isn't any of the extreme examples that the media wants to do. And boy, do I have some stories about what the media wants to do for you next week. Uh, I was bombarded by requests from mainstream, large-scale media. Uh, specifically, uh, one guy from Nat Geo that I'll talk about next week. Um, but I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about the basic concept that it's stupid to have less than a week's worth of food in your home. That you should have a plan to get out if you have to get out. You should have a plan to stay if you have to stay. You should be aware of the threats around you. And you should not partake of the delusion any further. And you should start to build a really solid, stable life as an individual with individual liberty and freedom from systems of support so that what you take from the system is by choice rather than need. And if the more of us that do that, we start to shine around people around us. They start to look at you and go, how do you live this way? How do you, how do you, how do you have such a great attitude? I, I can't tell you how many people that came up to me at the show and said to me, you know, the, the, the country's done, it's over. And I would share the, with them my far more optimistic view. And they would say something to me like, wow, you must have a lot of faith in the government, or you must have a lot of faith in the Federal Reserve. And I'm like, I have no faith in the government. I have no faith in the Federal Reserve. I have tremendous faith in America's people. America's people are not the government. America's people are in the government. America's people are not the Federal Reserve. In fact, many of the people running the Fed, I don't believe, are even American. But I do have faith in us. I have faith in our Constitution, our Declaration, our history, our culture, and who we are as a people. I know there's a lot of ants out there, and there's a lot of grasshoppers out there. And I know it's really easy when you become an ant to see the grasshoppers and go, wow. And see, I think that's what a lot of us need to take into account. Many of us grew up as ants like I did and became grasshoppers in our own way. We got the big job, we got the income, we left our roots 
and we started the you know roll with the high rollers, man. You know, eating out every night, throwing down the uh, the Visa or the Mastercard, buying the big house, buying the big cars, buying into the stock market when we didn't know what we were buying. We did, we did it all, and eventually we went. Wait a minute, wait, and something something was your seminal moment. That you woke up and went, holy crap! I'm a grasshopper. This and it may not be what you thought, right? You might have even known the story, but you said, "This is dumb. I need to change the way I'm living." And the more you change toward being an ant, the more visible the grasshopper behavior becomes, and you start to look around and go, "Wow, we're we're just done. There's no way." But then you ignore your own transformation. If you can transform, then why can't your fellow man? And I know there's some people out there. That you look at and go, never. Those people never. They'll they'll always have a handout. They'll always have an expectation. They'll always have an entitlement attitude. And I think you're probably putting a bigger number on that than it is. I think that the minute that the stone cold reality of there is no more handouts, it is winter. Buck up and antify or die. A lot of those people you think are helpless will convert. Hopefully, it's not too late for them. But there's, you're right. There is a group of people who, as my father used to put it, if they just shut the lights off and you had to walk to the store, if everything still worked, but there were no cars and no lights, there's a segment of the society that would lay down and die, and there's a segment of the society that would be very, very dangerous. And there are two different segments, and it doesn't matter who's in them because people you don't think are in either one are probably in one or the other. But the rest of us. Figure out what to do, and I think that's the real story of where we're at. So I don't believe that government can fix this problem. I certainly don't believe the Federal Reserve can fix this problem. I don't believe our currency has a true future much beyond about somewhere between 2014 and 2020, and that's a guess. And if it was, if it's still the shape and form and format that it is in 2020, and I'm wrong, be grateful you got more time to sort things out. But I think that that is the far edge of the, the the hopeful timeline before we see a rebasement in the currency. And if it happened next year, it would be earlier than I expected. But it wouldn't surprise me. We we've done things with our money supply that are just dumb. So I have no faith there. I have no faith in in the senators or the congressmen or the president. And I don't care if they're Democrats or Republicans. I have no faith in what they're doing because everything they're doing is complete antithesis. Of turning my nation back into a nation of people that stand upright and fend for themselves and are prepared. It, 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 the the government is a reflection of the people, and that's one thing we have to understand. They didn't do it all on their own and turn us right. We turned and we gave them the freedom to be what we are. And as long as we have 51% grasshoppers, we're gonna have a grasshopper government and a grasshopper economy. Where more spending is always better. And the goal of government and the goal of a financial management. Which is the Federal Reserve is to get people to spend money. That's that's there. There is no talk of savings. In fact, right now in our nation, our leaders in the financial and government sectors are saying that the problem is people are saving too much. You realize that? That's the problem. We're too, if we would just stop saving and start spending, man, this thing would just come and run. And they're right because they pumped in trillions of dollars that we do not have out of thin air. And there is something called velocity of money, and that's what's holding back inflation right now. No, they didn't say there wasn't any inflation, but this big inflation we all expected, we ain't seen yet. You know why? The money's not moving. Two things have to take place for inflation to happen. Many people believe if you just increase the money supply, that's inflation. It's not in of itself inflation. If you increase the money supply, and at the same time the underlying economy expands at the same rate, you actually get a very level, non-inflationary system. If you increase the money supply just a little bit greater than the expansion of the economy, you get moderate inflation, which encourages spending and discourages savings. And that's the Federal Reserve's goal. That's what they've been trying to do since 1913: keep inflation just moderate, one to two to four percent a year, somewhere in there. To keep it just high enough so that it makes more sense for you to mortgage a house than buy a house. That's the goal. That's what they've been doing. Well, then they got to this point where people went, "Whoa, thanks, well, we can't loan anymore. The housing market's falling apart. People are losing jobs, and people started realizing money had value again and started saving it up. So they pumped the money in and pumped the money in and pumped the money in and go spend, spend, spend. And people go, "Oh, wait a minute, 
Whatever money I can come by right now, I need to think before I spend. I'll drive my car at least two more years before I trade it in on that new car. Uh, this home actually keeps us dry, keeps us warm, and if we move up, we're going to just pay more home, we're going to pay more taxes, and by the side, besides, it's hard to get a loan anyway. So people start curtailing the spending and start saving, and they go, this isn't a problem. Well, sooner or later, sooner or later, they will pull the cap off of that, and they'll make the money flow. They'll do it by taxing corporate gains to a point where corporations will feel it's better to spend the money than hold it, even if, even if it's lost. They'd rather spend it than hold it and be taxed on it. They'll do something to make that money flow. And when that money flows, that's when the inflation comes. And it'll look like a party. But it'll be like that 3 a.m. part of the party where you really know when everybody starts singing songs and holding hands and leaning on each other and rocking back and forth and holding up cigarette lighters. Man, these people are really in for it now. i got to get the hell out of here before uh, the sun comes up. And that's, that's where we're headed. So it's not that I believe that the people throwing the party can fix it. It's that I believe that when the party's over, generally speaking, cooler heads prevail, and once the headaches go away, people clean up the mess. So I guess my question for you today is, if we come out of the party on the other side, and it's a really, really bad hangover, a decade-long or more hangover, and we come out better than we went in, and as stronger as a nation, if we've learned something and we really rebuild stronger and better than ever before, which I believe we can, is it worth the pain? And the answer to that is it's dependent on where you end up in the pain spectrum. Remember, I've said this before, and I believe this, that everybody in America, if you do not prepare for what's coming, if you, if you ignore this warning that I give so consistently... What you can expect is to go down a standard of living if you're upper middle class, middle class. If you're middle class, lower middle class. If you're lower middle class, slip to the poverty standard of living. And I want to be clear about something. I don't think I've ever quite explained when I've said this before. When I say that, I don't mean income-wise. Okay? If you slip income-wise, you're going to go more than one step down. I mean, in the best case scenario, if you continue to live as a grasshopper in this country, and believe that the system is stable, and you keep your job even through the big collapse of the currency that's coming, and you're able to pay your bills, basically, that the power of the money that you have will slip such that even if you have the same income, your standard will fall. And what you need to be doing right now is realizing it's not winter yet. If you think this is winter, you don't know winter. Right? This is the cool, crisp autumn day telling you winter is really, really close, but you still have a lot of really good time to prepare. And if you prepare and solidify your life so that you are in a position where if you had 30 or 40% less income, you could still live the way you are now, then if as long as you continue to work hard and do the best you can, you know, the, the, the drop's gonna come. And, uh, but if you, if you do heat it, and you get to a point where you are actually solidified where you're at, you'll be able to stand through this. And on the other side of it, you'll have a tremendous opportunity to improve your quality of life. And I see, this is another one of those examples where it can happen to everybody, but it happens to somebody every day. I had a lady come up to me at the show in, uh, in Denver, uh, an older lady, I would say somewhere in her 50s and 60s, who cried when she talked to us. And um, told me how she had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia. She'd been put on disability at 60% of her income. And when it first happened, it was a tremendous disaster because she, you know, lived in Chicago and she liked living in Chicago and she lived in a beautiful suburb and she liked that. And she paid $7,000 a year in property taxes and she thought that was, well, that was worth it. And her entire lifestyle had to change because at 60%, she couldn't maintain it. All right. So finding the show for her was a big deal, and she was so grateful because it simply told her that if I change what I'm doing, I can actually still have quality of life, and I have freedom now. Uh, not that anybody wants it through disability, but as long as that's the way that it is, that money is a guarantee, and I can go out and figure out how to make that work. But I want to relate this to you. If today you have an income of $100,000 a year, and you have all the bills that you currently have, and everything costs what it currently costs. Uh, and certain costs will be fixed, like a mortgage. As long as it's not a variable rate, it's not going to go up. 
but the property taxes or insurance can, right? So some portion of the home expense is fixed and some portion is variable. Uh, electricity, if it gets more expensive, is a variable expense for the home, things like that. And let's say we go through this currency devaluation and rebasing and everything changes and over a year or two, the inflation rate is 40 to 50%, meaning the power of your money is decreased by 40%. It's the same thing for you. It's the same thing for you. Now, if you've gotten to a point where you can live on 60% of your income, uh, you don't have the surplus anymore, but you can maintain what you have. And I think a funny thing will happen is you'll figure out how to maintain some level of surplus anyway, because you've already done the exercise. But do you see how the effect of what I'm talking about, a 40% devaluation of your money can happen to somebody through a disability issue where they cannot work anymore, and that's what's available to them, or everything looks like it stays the same, but the power of money is cut in half. And that's what I think is in our future. And that's why I want to turn this nation into one nation full of ants again. I want to kind of talk to you about a concept my grandfather also told me about, but he didn't mean it the way I'm going to explain it to you. He called it, he called it winter in July. There was one year, I don't remember what year, but this isn't like, you know, with the volcano thing and the little ice age and uh, where the, there was a year without a summer. There was one year, and this was back in like, God, I want to say it was the 40s or the 50s in Pennsylvania where it snowed in July. He called it winter in July. And he talked about how a lot of people thought it was kind of neat because it didn't last very long. It lasted about a week of cold weather, and it snowed one day, and it snowed like a bunch of snow, like accumulation. They didn't think it was so great because it killed everything in the garden in July, where usually that's when they were just hitting their head, you know, headwaters and going. So they had to do things and try to get by in that year. So that was his winter in July, and his point to me was simply that you never know what's going to happen. I want to ask you today, what is winter in July for our country, and how long could it last? Winter in July, in the story of the grasshopper and the ant, winter is a very predictable phenomenon, and it happens for a very predictable length of time. Depending on where you are in the country, we get to a point where it will go below freezing, and it will snow and ice sometimes, and we come back to a point where that stops. And those of you that live in like the tip of Florida, you have your own versions of winter, like, you know, torrential storms that kill you. So there's a metaphorical winter everywhere, but seasonally, there's a winter in most places other than the tropics and subtropics, and there's a seasonality to it, whether it's the tundra of Alaska, where it actually gets somewhat decent for a little while and then has a long winter, or it's the middle of the United States with a four-month winter and an eight-month spring, summer, fall. So it's very predictable based on where you're at, and it's very cyclical. But sometimes we have those winters in July. Well, if we have a national winter in July, and understand this is a metaphor here, where what I'm saying and what I'm predicting happens, where for one reason or another there is a dramatic loss in the power of the dollar almost overnight, like that storm that comes in July, how long will that last? Is that a four-month storm? Is it a four-year storm? Is it a 10-year storm or is it a 40-year storm? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's a decade, though. I think it's a decade. And I don't think it's a decade of the road warrior. I don't think it's a decade of there is no more United States of America. I think it's a decade, an entire decade minimum, of America living below its means and figuring out how to do that and how to do that in a way that actually allows you to then begin to build yourself up beyond your means. I think it's a, it's a decade because it's going to take that long for the average American who is at least prepared enough to, to get through the initial blizzard to figure it out. And I think that it could become longer because the more government does to fix it and prevent America from learning its lesson, the longer the duration of the winter. And that's where I think we're headed. But I don't think that has to hit you as hard as it's going to hit everybody else. I think there's things that you can do personally to be prepared to rebuild. And one is immediately stop living outside of your means if you are. That's why, you know, the credit card thing and, well, I get miles, I get cash back, whatever. Stop it. Stop it. Just stop. You're never going to have a surplus if you believe you can spend money you don't have today. I don't care if you pay your balance every month. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't you're going to spend more than you would if you did not have that ability. 
You know, if um, if you want to stay faithful to your spouse, you don't run around in a place with lots of single women getting drunk all the time. Because even when you have the moral fortitude that you know to do the right thing and you plan to do the right thing, you create an environment for yourself where you're far more likely to make a discretion because you put yourself into a position that you never should have been in the first place. That's how I see credit in this country today. And that's why I think it has to stop. I've been asked, you know, Dave Canterbury, who's a, who's a, who's a dear friend of mine now, uh, that we've, we've come closer and closer as friends over the years, asked me while I was out there and had dinner with him, you know, what is the big obsession with gardening and planting stuff? He's like, I know all these different places that I can go and I can just get food out of the wild. And I'm like, Dave, well, first of all, there's things that people want that don't grow in the wild. And in a situation where they become expensive or unavailable, those people would still like to have them. But the reality is far bigger than that. It's that if I can put food production into a place today where it can provide for my needs, it's surplus I can put away now. And, folks, I love lamb's quarters and dandelion greens and miner's lettuce. It's good stuff. But it, it does not have the nutritional value of a pepper or a watermelon or a tomato. So I want all of these things. I want natural wild foods available from foraging on land I own or public land. And I want things that are more of a consumer nation. I want them in my diet today. And I don't want to pay for them today. So that I can take the money I would have spent and build myself a reserve. And extract myself from debt. And everything else we talk about, storing food, the same thing. I want to do it smart. I don't want to whip out the Amex and buy a $9,000 pallet of Mountain House and stick it in my garage. That doesn't make any sense. I want to eat what I store and store what I want eat, and I want to be very smart about how I spend my money. And I don't care if I'm a millionaire. I want to be doing that today. Because if you're a millionaire today, and you're living a millionaire's lifestyle, what I'm telling you is you're not immune from this. Okay? If you do not take the steps to solidify yourself at that millionaire quality of life, you're going to have a half a millionaire quality of life, even though you're still going to have a million dollars. And it's, if you have fifty thousand, you're going to have a twenty-five thousand dollars standard of life, unless you do not, unless you solidify yourself into that fifty thousand dollars standard by figuring out how to do it with twenty-five thousand dollars. That should be the goal of every American right now. How do I maintain the things that I want in my life on half of what I have, so that I can save the other half and be prepared for the winter? And it doesn't have to be overnight. If you can start out with, how do I do it on 95%? You'll be shocked. And then you can try 90. And then you'll be shocked again. And then you can try 85. And you can incrementally work yourself there. But get on the path now, because winter is coming. And here's the constant, winter always comes. And the grasshoppers always freeze to death. That's what they do. They die. If they didn't lay eggs that were protected so that new little baby grasshoppers could come out next year, one winter would eliminate grasshoppers forever and all time. Think about that. That's how close the grasshopper is a species is to extinction. Not metaphorically, in the wild, for real. At an insect level. The ability of the eggs to survive until spring is the only thing that keeps the species alive and viable in zones where winter comes. Man, that Aesop was a pretty smart dude, wasn't he? What a concept. That if he didn't give you that in the story, maybe you dig deeper and find it. How many other lessons are there in the simple story of the grasshopper and the ant that we don't see, that we don't talk about, that maybe even the author didn't realize what he was doing when he put down, you know, that quill pen to the first parchment where he recorded his stories. So I do believe that there's a lot that we can do to rebuild. I also think I want to talk to you guys today about something that it's very important to me that this community understand. What we are doing is not opting out. We're not opting out. We're not walking away from America. We're not renouncing our citizenship. We're not saying the hell with the grasshoppers. But we are opting out of something. We're opting out of the expectation of others. The expectation of others that we will live within the rules society has set up that are expectational rules. We have rules. You can't steal from your neighbor. We had a book that told us that a long time ago. By the way, just about every holy book out there has a version of not stealing. Right? It's not unique to Judeo-Christianity. Not to steal. But beyond the religion, we have laws in place in every society. 
whether it's a group of pygmies that have a very severe penalty, by the way, for stealing from your neighbor, or a society like ours where maybe you'll get a fine if it's a minor theft. We have these rules, and those rules need to be followed. Those are laws. But then we have this entire other group of rules that say things like everybody should go to college. Having debt is normal. You'll always have a car payment. Buying a house is an investment and you should not be afraid to borrow money to do it. In fact, you should borrow money, buy one, and buy a bigger one every few years. And all these other things. Throw 10 to 15% of your money into retirement and don't even look at it until you're close to retirement age. Because the stock market will all, all of those rules have to go away. It doesn't even mean that sometimes we don't partake in them like some of us will still put money into a retirement account in a conventional style with the tax advantages that go along with it. We just won't do it on autopilot and not pay attention. And we just don't do it with 100% of what we're saving. We actually save some money where we get our grubby little hands on it because we realize that we might need it. Winter might just come before you're age 59 and a half, folks. Shocking as that might be. Your personal winner, our national winner, or a global winner might come before you're 59 and a half. If you're 20, I guarantee you, you will see many winners before you're 59 and a half, unless your problems are ended by like a 10-wheeler running you over. So have some that you can get to. So opt out of the rules. You have to live in a neighborhood with an HOA. There's HOAs everywhere now. If you want a nice house, bullshit. I had a, a guy working for me. That, yeah, they're all HOAs. No, they're not, Bobby. That's why I told him, no, you're crazy. There's plenty of places without an HOA. Find one. You know? Oh, you have to buy a new car. Why? Let some, let some other fool take the depreciation on it. You know, you have to get out of all of these expectational rules that other people have. Oh, you have to have this school district, or you have to have this housing district, or you have to go to this, you have to go to the city to get a job, or whatever it is. It's not that you might not go along with some of them, but please do it with open eyes. Know why you believe what you believe and make your decision based on all the facts versus what society tells you. And that's what we're doing as a community. We're opting out of the expectations of others and doing things in our own way because we know that will make us very, very clearly an ant. And the only way that we're going to get more of this nation ready for what's coming is not to yell at them and scream at them and tell them, grasshopper, here comes the snow. Because what happened in the story when the ant told the grasshopper? The blunt, honest truth. The snow will come, you will freeze, and you will die, and we will not be able to help you. The grasshopper did what? He continued to screw off. He continued to play. He continued to party. And when the hangover came, his little green butt froze to death into a little green icicle, and he died. And if he, if he stayed frozen through the winter and the spring, the, the ants came out and said, huh, look at that, a well-preserved grasshopper. And they chopped him up and they ate him. So we know that just telling people what's coming won't work. We have to show them that what we do works better now, even if nothing goes wrong. But follow the guiding number one tenet of the Survival Podcast. Everything that you do to prepare for disaster or emergency tomorrow should improve your life today, even if nothing goes wrong. And if we do that, the example causes conversion, not the message. The message goes along with the example. When people can come to your house and you go, yeah, I bought the house, I don't have a credit card. Yeah, there's my garden, here's our food on our table. Oh, yeah, you need something? What do you need? You wanted to make a cake today? You're out of eggs? You know what? Uh, I only have a couple fresh eggs for breakfast, but let me pop this 10, number 10 can open. How many eggs you need? Okay, that's this many scoops. Take this and add a half cup of water to it, and it'll give you your eggs for your cake. Right? Simple things like that. When you're able to live those examples, you're going to create far more people that realize that we're not crazy, we're not nuts, and what we're doing makes sense in good times and bad. That's what it's really all about. And that's how we can become one nation filled with ants. Again, I don't believe that our, our, our nation is beyond help as a people, as a society, as a community. I don't believe the naysayers that say, there is no hope, it's too late. I think there's plenty of hope, but that hope's not in the, the coffers of government. It's not in the coffers that the lobbyists put in front of government to get them to do what they want. It's not in our, in our financial system, our Federal Reserve. It's not in any of those places. It's in you. It's in me, and it's in your fellow Americans that you have written off, that you have decided that person is beyond help. Okay, there is that group. 
It's a hell of a lot smaller than you've probably convinced yourself that it is. And I'll ask you again. Did you, at one time in life, if you look back now, would you say, I was a grasshopper? Do you really think you're better than all those other people who haven't figured that out yet? Or do you just think you're a little closer uh, in the timeline to figuring it out? Do you really think that the average person doesn't have the capability that you do? Are you or I or anybody else here that superior to the rest of society that we have this innate wisdom of antism and they're all just stupid grasshoppers there's nothing they can do? Or, or do they all have their seminal moments in their future? Or do most of them? And what will it take to reach them? And will you reach people by telling them how wrong they are? Or do you reach people by showing them how right what we have is, how special it is, how it actually is our history, it is our culture. Do you understand that at one time preparedness in America was considered a moral virtue? It was valued. When people talked about somebody that saved money, they didn't call them a miser. They said, that man's smart. He's taking care of his family and he's prepared no matter what happens. And now we think people that save their money are greedy. It's a change in morality that's led us here. It's we stopped valuing frugality, right? We stopped valuing preparedness. We stopped valuing hard manual work. We stopped looking at a guy that worked physically hard and going, that's a hardworking man. We started going, what a fool. Why didn't he go to college? And we sat down in our easy chair and realized that hardworking man built our house, poured our concrete foundation, built our cabinetry, built our road so we could drive our ass to work and sit in that cubicle and make that big paycheck. And we stopped valuing him. We stopped valuing and we stopped seeing the morality that built this nation. We drive on this great interstate system, and yeah, it's got some problems and flaws. But if you want to get from one end of the country to the other, man, you can do it. And there's a lot of ways to get there. And a lot of that goes back to the initiative under Dwight Eisenhower. And the same guy that's out there pouring the black top today that we, we mock, well, in the 50s, he built that road so you could get to work every day, so that you could be a 50-mile commuter and have that big house, pay those big taxes. See, the problem that we have today is not that we are a nation full of grasshoppers because our elected officials are grasshoppers. The problem we have today is that we have stopped valuing the very things that make one person want to grow up and be known as an ant. But given that it's just a generation, folks, it's just one generation that we've come this far away from, there's no reason to believe that we can't reinstill in our children and reinstill in our society the moral value of things like preparedness and frugality and humility and community. All of these things are in people. And this is why as soon as people take one little taste of self-sufficiency and self-reliance, one little taste, it changes their lives forever. The first time they sit down to a meal and they serve their family something simple like a salad and say, I grew all of this and I foraged for the rest. It's not that in of itself it's that big a deal. It's that in of itself it's that much a part of who we are and what we are and what we're all about. You can take a lion that's been raised as a, as a, as a pet its whole life, that's never chased a wild animal, has no idea what to do. And you can have that thing be as, as, as calm and tame as the, the mildest, most moderate house cat. Lay on his belly and be scratched. But if you put him in the right environment and you put him in a place where he's got a little bit of hunger in his belly because he ain't been fed today, inside that lion he is still a lion. And he is a couple weeks away from running down gazelles, breaking their necks, and eating them down to the bones. Because that's who and what he is. He's a lion. Well... You're a human. And human beings have the ability to see into the future and expect problems. Human beings were designed to live in connection with our planet by utilizing its resources in an intelligent manner. Human beings are designed to be members of communities. We are communal beings. In our hearts, in our souls, in our minds, we are teachers and students. We are builders. We are creators. We are growers. 
That's what we are. Well, preparedness is about understanding that's what you are. And once you touch one piece of it, the delusion that you've lived under, that you're some sort of receptor, that you're just supposed to sit there and everything's supposed to show up in front of you and be presented to you, once you connect with the fact that some of it you got to go out and get, it's not a burden. It feels good because you're acting like what you are. Just like when that lion that's maybe lived in captivity for four years gets hungry enough And you know, maybe the first gazelle it runs down, it doesn't even know what to do with it. But then inside of itself, snap! And it tastes real meat the way it's supposed to live, because that's what a lion is. They're not supposed to be in a zoo. They're supposed to be on the plains, eating plains game. That's what their purpose, that's what their role is. That's who they're supposed to be. Once he feels that done, you're not going to put him back in a cage. He'll go out and find a pride. He'll take over the pride. He'll make little baby lions. He'll go back to being exactly what he is, and he'll feel liberated and free and real, and he'll be a lion. That's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to be a human. Preparedness is a human virtue. It is not a weird, abstract com concept, and that's why I believe we can become, once again, one nation filled with ants. There's been a lot done... And there's been a bill of goods sold to my people that have turned us into that nation of grasshoppers, that have told us that's the way to be, that fiddling and farting around and playing and believing the field will always be green is the way to be. But inside of us, inside of us, just like the inside of that lion, is a basic innate humanity that has a 200,000 years of genetic programming within it, no matter how you believe we started out. We've been here at least that long. We've walked the planet for that long. We've died and we have you know, been born. We have lost people that we've cared about. Even the most primitive person, when their child died, ached in their heart. When their father died, ached in their heart. Who we are and what we are is too deep and too real to be lost. And as long as we can reconnect with it, then folks, yes, once again, our nation can become... One nation filled with fans. With that, this has been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. Like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay I guess we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way